The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. We're kinky done differently. What women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self, with questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie. It's tough enough in this world to explore the world of sex and kink when you're able to enjoy it all. But what happens when challenges get in the way at seemingly every turn? We visit with such a person who has to deal with those challenges all of the time. Rachel Rose is a chronically ill and disabled bisexual neurodivergent and polyamorous certified sex and relationship coach and educator whose work focuses on an inclusive, sex-positive, and pleasure-focused approach to sex education and sexual health for all, and specializes in the way chronic illness, disabilities, and ADHD impact sex and relationships. She's presented about sexuality topics, both in the U.S. and internationally, and has been featured in media such as Teen Vogue, Bustle, and Sexual Health Magazine. Rachel is also the creator of the award-winning sexuality blog, Hedonish.com, and the co-founder of Glittergasm Events, an event company that hosts inclusive and accessible sex-positive play parties for the LGBTQ community. Rachel is also an advocate for disability rights and accessibility, and her work on fragrance accessibility has been featured in... UCLA's Accessible Spaces Toolkit. She has volunteered her time to help multiple conferences and events create and fine tune their accessibility policies to be more inclusive of the 30% of the population who live with fragrance sensitivities. Now let's meet from hedonish.com, Rachel Rose on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time, Rachel, you ever hosted an event and how nervous were you? Uh, I think the first event that I hosted was um, probably like the second or third glittergasm. My, my business partner hosted the first few and I was pretty nervous. Um, I didn't feel like I was maybe qualified to be hosting a sex party. Uh, glittergasm is the, uh, it's um, a... Uh, events is a business I co-own where we co where we host uh, um, accessible and inclusive uh, play parties for the LGBTQ community in the Philadelphia region. Um, and so I, I was really nervous, but it, it went great. And I, I love hosting them. I can't wait till I can host them again. First time that your brain ever calmed down to where you can enjoy a kink scene. You know, I don't know if it's happened yet. Um, I, I, I'll be honest, I tend to have a really noisy brain. And so I can probably count on maybe one or both hands, the amount of times my brain actually calms down enough to like, kind of forget my surroundings a little bit. Um, but I've had a lot of enjoyable kink scenes. First time you were ever published and your reaction when you opened up the magazine and saw your name there. I don't know if I've ever actually gone out and bought any of the magazines. I usually see them online, but I did see an episode, um, an episode, a issue of Sexual Health Magazine from maybe two or three years ago. Uh, and getting to see it in like kind of spread form was like, that's my picture. Like, that's really fucking cool. <laughs> like, maybe I'm not just screaming out into the void of the internet. Uh, yeah, it kind of it's, it makes you feel like you're actually doing something that maybe has some impact. So that's really cool. First time you ever ran into a barrier that you couldn't overcome? 
Um, I think that happens a lot with my disability. Uh, I have a, a rare uh, mast cell disease that causes me to have a pretty severe fragrance um, and chemical sensitivity. And there have been a few times that I haven't been able to figure out a, a life hack to get around that. Um, things I couldn't go do or um, like things I wanted to participate in and, and there wasn't a good accessible option for me. So those are, they've always been kind of hard moments when that happens, because usually I'm pretty clever about how to, how to navigate the world, um, even with that allergy. First time anyone in the kink scene ever surprised you by the way they approached you and how it actually turned out? I think the people who tend to approach me uh, are generally people I already know a little bit, um, at least the ones that are like positive interactions. Um, I think... There's probably not many women out there who haven't been approached by a couple of uh, weird guys, but I, they're not super memorable. Um, but uh, uh, prior to the pandemic, I'd wear my mask a lot because of, um, I, because of my allergies. And uh, a few times people would ask me at kink events whether or not that was uh, a kink thing. And I was like, well, it's, it's not a kink thing, but I guess it could be uh, in the right situation. I don't know, but uh, so, so maybe those, those encounters were a little odd and stuck in my mind. Hi, this is Rachel Leadham, aka The Conscious Masochist. I'm an author and sadomasochism integration mentor who encourages the mindful exploration of your dark side. I offer astrological birth chart readings to interpret your sadomasochistic blueprint through the clues found within your chart. You can learn more about my work, including the ebook Conscious Masochism, at my website, www.rachelleadham.com. And join us on Instagram at The Conscious Masochist. And be sure to check out my episode in the archives of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Rachel Rose is a chronically ill and disabled, bisexual, neurodivergent, and polyamorous certified sex and relationship coach and educator. That's a mouthful. How would you describe yourself? Um, probably like a big old sex nerd. Um, I, <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> that's probably like the sum of it. Uh, but yes, no, I, I, sexuality is always something that's, that has always fascinated me. And I really, uh, I've always loved talking to people about it. Um, and I think there's some novelty to it. The fact that most people aren't super comfortable talking to a lot of people about those things. So, so being somebody who people feel comfortable sharing that information with and getting to talk about things that they probably feel maybe insecure or nervous about, um, or unsure about, it's always been like super rewarding and, um, boy, I just want to kind of learn everything all of the time. So, um, especially about the things I'm interested in, um, which probably goes back to the ADHD. So yeah, big nerd. Was there a time when you just suddenly had an epiphany that said, this is what I want to do? Um, so yeah, yeah, I think it did. Um, a few years ago, I had a big life shift. Uh, I, I kind of acquired my chronic illness. It wasn't really impactful in my life until my mid twenties. Mm. And so um, I, I actually have worked for, as a graphic designer for the last 15 years. Um, and I still do that on the side, but um, 
I had to leave my last full-time job because it wasn't accessible to me and they denied my reasonable accommodations. And there were some other um, wage discrimination uh, against me for my gender. And at that point I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do what makes me happy. Like I, I kind of got saddled with this chronic illness I didn't want and the ways that it impacts me, but I can kind of use this as a jumping off point to do something that I feel way more fulfilled by. Um, and so that kind of is what led me to uh, pursuing sex, sex, like a sexuality um, focused career uh, and still doing some graphic design on the side because I really love it. When people come to you, is there a special sort of person that comes to you or is it people just from everyday life? I think it's been a pretty, pretty big mix so far. Um, I think it's a lot of people who are, they're feeling unsure about something in their life around sexuality uh, and are looking for someone to kind of talk to about it or help in the right direction. Um, I particularly love working with people who are, I mean, I love working with a lot of different people, but, mm-hmm. um, I especially feel, um, passionate about working with other folks who are chronically ill or disabled, um, or who have ADHD, because I know that those things can cause such huge impacts in your sex life and your relationships and the way you show up in different ways. And in a lot of ways they are not really discussed. And so I think there's kind of this huge need for it. Um, and when I was in that place where I needed help, I couldn't find the resources I was looking for and wanted to become someone who was able to offer that to other people. When was the first time somebody came to you and said, oh my gosh, Rachel, you have made a difference in my life. You've been a game changer. Okay, that's probably, it's always me to like tear up because it was like really meaningful. Uh, I was at a conference a couple of years ago um, and someone walked up to me and I didn't know them. And they said that a friend had pointed them toward my, I have a blog that I run, hedonish.com, and someone had pointed them to my blog. It turns out like through the, the polycule world, like they were dating somebody I was friends with and, um, and that they had uh, had a lot of health issues. And they read an article I wrote about my chronic illness um, and how it impacted me. And they used that and brought it to their doctor and they got a diagnosis and were able to get medication uh, and then they, um, them and, and their wife told me that I had changed their life wow. and made it a lot better. Yeah. It was like amazing. This is going to sound a little blunt, but I'm going to ask it in this way. Go for it. How pissed off are you about the disabilities that you have and how much does that drive you to help others who have them? Um, you know, there's days where it's really hard. Uh, I'm a very extroverted person and having a fragrance allergy basically makes me allergic to people because it's in like 97% of products that we sell. Um, especially in the United States, there's very few regulations around it. So, um, it makes it really hard to navigate the world. Um, I think, I think I tend to look at it as like, okay, here's the thing people don't know is an accessibility need. Here's like, I refuse to be somebody who's trapped in their house all the time. And so how can I change the world to fit me? Like, how can I make it something that I'm able to navigate? Um, And I think sometimes that comes from being pissed off and being super blunt, probably particularly around my period where I hate everything and I'm mad at everyone, Um, but uh, for being blunt here. Uh, But um, yeah, no, I'd rather, I could just be mad about it all the time or I could do something about it and hopefully make some kind of something positive come out of something that's really not great. I can imagine that a fragrance allergy is one because it is silent, because it is invisible, is something that is so difficult for other people to comprehend. For somebody who has no idea about it, has never experienced it, explain to us just how overwhelming it is in your life. I love that question because um, it is really hard for people to understand. Um, I have family members who don't I am really grasp it. Um, and like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I could wear perfume. Like it didn't bother me. I, it just developed over time because of this uh, other chronic, this chronic disease that I have. Um, okay, so I, I, I did the, when I did, I did this like coaching program um, a while back and they asked me to do like a five minute TED talk. And so what I talked to me through was um, I said, okay, so it was, I think, very toward the beginning of COVID. Uh, and I said, okay, so let's imagine COVID ends tomorrow, right? And you're excited to go see your family and you're excited to go out into the world and go back to events. And it's safe to do all these things that you love again. Okay, now imagine um, 
you know, the people you're going to see, they use a fragrance detergent, or maybe they sprayed Febreze on their couch a couple of weeks ago, or maybe they have a Glade plug-in and now you can't go see them because you can't go into their house unless they, or maybe they need, in order for you to spend time with them, they need to change the detergent or, um, you know, or you can't go to the mall or to the event that you want to, because there's something called ambient scenting. It's this thing that they, it's marketing people do, and they pump fragrances through the HVAC systems in certain buildings that does like particularly malls and, um, but other places too sometimes. So maybe you want to go to an event and you can't because you can't even enter the building, right? Or, um, you know, maybe a, maybe a friend you haven't seen in a while hugs you and, you know, I'm five feet tall, so I'm, I'm pretty short. And people always <laughs> want to hug over your shoulder. And if their shoulder lands on, t- like if their underarm lands on top of your shoulder, sometimes people's deodorant will get there. And then I have mm-hmm. allergic reactions to it the entire day until I can go home and shower. So sometimes I've had to leave things because someone hugged me. Someone I was like so excited to see. Mm-hmm. Like imagine anything that you enjoy doing in your life. And then imagine having to avoid every source of fragrance, either something someone used that day, something someone used uh, in their hair two days ago on their products or clothing weeks ago, especially like laundry detergent um, and having to navigate your entire life around those things because they make you go into anaphylaxis. You know, they can um, cause me cognitive dysfunction or I have trouble breathing or I break out in hives or my stomach hurts. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of other symptoms. My throat will swell. Um, there's just a few of those, but I don't actually know which symptoms I'm going to get because it seems to differ every single time. And so I've had to rearrange my entire life to become something uh, that to, to make it a little bit easier to navigate those things. Um, it's part of why I like hosting events is that I get to make the rules about who gets to attend them. And if you're wearing fragrances, you can't. Um, luckily, it makes it accessible for other people too, but otherwise I can't even go. So yeah, thank you for asking. And when you talk about not even being able to go, if I sprain my knee, I can put on a knee brace. If I uh, am having trouble walking, I can put on more comfortable shoes. I take it that even with a mask, you don't have protection. No mask. So like, if, let's say I need to run into a fragrance store or something. Um, Cause sometimes it happens and I need to grab one thing and um, I would say my mask helps for a few minutes at best. And I'm talking like N95 masks. Um, I can wear a full-blown respirator, like the kind you would use to do home construction or I don't know, make meth, who knows. Um, and they, it helps more, but it's really uncomfortable. It makes it very hard to talk. Um, it, and it puts a lot of pressure on your sciences and it hurts my face and head. Um, so I, I, I only use it um, honestly to paint my nails and to do home renovation stuff, but um, <laughs> Yeah. So, so the masks that even the good ones that we've all been wearing for the last year or so, um, they don't, they don't do enough to help. The, uh, fragrance particles are smaller than virus particles. Mm. Um, and so they don't block out the same amount of stuff. Uh, it's also the wrong filter for it, but the right filters only come for the respirators. Mm-hmm. So, and no one's really come up with a better design for those yet. The only thing that I can think of, and I'm not trying to be flippant is that if you ever, developed a latex fetish you could just wear the gas mask and it just goes from there latex oh my lord wow so okay so a little a little background because it'll make this a lot easier to understand so um i have something called a mast cell disease what that means is um for me at least i have too many of a type of immune cell called a mast cell they hold tons Mm -hmm. of chemicals and um when they release those chemicals in your body it's usually to fight viruses and pathogens bacteria whatever like all the stuff that you need to fight off my body doesn't really understand what it should fight and what it shouldn't fight. So it goes off at everything. And so wow. I developed these allergies to things that like, just, I will be okay with something one day. And the next day I'm not, um, one of my partner used to use head and shoulders shampoo one day, he used it for like a decade. Um, one day I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth while he washed his hair. And all of a sudden I started coughing, couldn't, uh, stop coughing. And I've been allergic to it ever since. I have no idea why. I mean, I, this is the reason why, but it still feels like you don't know why things are happening. So I developed these sensitivities to different things. I didn't start out allergic to latex. It developed over a period of time. Um, but that's actually a little bit more common latex as a sensitizer. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to bring that up like that, but that really helps oh, expand. Sorry. <laughs> no, it helps expand the understanding that you have to have. Because uh, I've talked with people with disabilities on this podcast 
And it's those invisible disabilities that people just don't understand. They think everything is fine because they can't see that something's wrong. And the understanding that goes with that is never enough, it seems. Unfortunately, it's not. And even in like media representation and stuff, when we talk about disabilities, we see a lot of visual, like physical ones that are visible. And those are super important and we need to represent them. And also, I think that often the depends on the person and the individual situation, but the, the challenges people with visible physical disabilities face is often a little bit different than what people with invisible disabilities face because they're just usually the disabilities themselves are different, but also um, there's this attitude toward what is more valid than the others. When Rachel and I come back on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about calming the mind and how kink may play a role in that when we return. Hi, my name is Leanne and I am the owner of Polyphilia, where you can get your daily fix of memes dedicated to polyamory, ethical non-monogamy and personal growth in open relationships. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Polyphilia blog, spelt P-O-L-Y P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. I hope to see you there, and please also check out my episode on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hello, I'm Jessie Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's time to get back to learning about the most important connection of all, the one we have with our authentic selves, on what women and other wonderful humans want, presented by Dating Kinky. Rachel Rose is the creator of the award-winning sexuality blog, Hedonish, and co-founder of Glittergasm Events, an event company that hosts inclusive and accessible sex-positive play parties for the LGBTQ plus community. And before the break, we talked about those invisible disabilities. And you and I share one, although I have never been diagnosed. And that is the inability to calm your mind from everything that is going on around you. You have the diagnosed ADHD, mm-hmm. which I can only imagine is what I feel except hyped up to an exponential power. My thing and the reason I love kink so much is I want to be stuck in a moment I can't get out of mm-hmm. where I'm not thinking about what's happening ahead, not thinking what's happening behind. Every day you go through life and it's a constant, dare I say, toss salad where you're always getting new ingredients put in there and then somebody puts a dressing and then somebody shakes it up. How does one get through day-to-day life to be able to concentrate on the things that they need to? That's a loaded question. Um, So I think ADHD has a little bit of... um, both. So there's moments where you are focused on a thousand things at once. And then sometimes um, you get hyper-focused on things and you are just intensely, intensely focused on probably one thing or topic or craft, uh, depends on the moment. Um, and so it varies back and forth. And sometimes I try to um, you know, come up with a bunch of different tactics to kind of help block out some of the noise. Um, sometimes being in certain locations is helpful for me. And, and I think it varies a lot by person. Um, and what, what things work for them, but, um, or uh, I will promise myself some kind of reward if I can focus on this one thing, uh, you know, something, whatever, whatever gives me the dopamine, that's the thing I'm probably going to do that day. Um, and so in general life, I think it's a little, it's a bit of a mix of um, what I find helpful. And some days I end up having a thousand windows open in Chrome and I'm working on 27 projects at the same time. And I've probably forgot to finish the email. I started writing at 9am and it's now 6 p.m. and because I got halfway through the email and I was like, you know why I'm doing this? I should probably do this other thing too. And then while I'm doing that, I should probably finish up this other thing. Oh, and since I started that, I guess I should finish this other thing too. And it kind of becomes this like 
vicious cycle where nothing gets finished, but I've started everything. Um, you know, so it's kind of hit or miss. I don't think there's a foolproof plan for it. And in hearing a previous interview from uh, my friends over at Off the Cuffs, thanks, Max, and thanks, Lexi, I heard a little bit about the fact that meditation just does not get you the right way. It does not help the calming. It doesn't. I, I have had, um, I've always been a big fan of like mental health and therapy. Um, and so I've, I've had a lot of therapists in my life that told me um, that I should try meditating. I've had a lot of doctors and, and I think that there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, sexism in there too, because they tend to think that like, because I have health problems, I must just, it must just be because I'm anxious. And I'm like, no, 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 I have anxiety, but I also have medical problems that are completely separate. Um, but they always think that like telling me to meditate will solve all of, all of the problems. Um, and meditation doesn't really do much for me. Um, but I was thinking about it recently. I think that when it comes to meditation and mindfulness, that what works for me as an ADHD is not what looks like meditation to everybody else. So it could be things like different kink scenes, or it could be, um, masturbating, or it could be, you know, cuddling with somebody or, you know, laying in a hammock and feeling the breeze, um, things that just taking a nice long shower. Like there's, I think different ways that you engage with that stuff. But for me, sitting still and trying to do nothing is like the most boring torture ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I will ask you this because I know that one of my kinks is definitely bondage and being held in one place where I don't have a choice of if I'm going to go anywhere or I don't have a choice of what I'm going to do. And I find that that calms me. I find that that takes me to the ability where I don't have it. It allows my mind to wander, but it focuses it because I can't get out of that particular situation. How do you use kink to help you? I think it kind of, I think it's, I like kink is more mindfulness. So I think that like different sensations and kind of being able to able to, um, to like feel sensations without having like judgment about them. So especially as like somebody who's chronically ill, there's a lot of times where like paying more attention to my body is not the thing I really necessarily want to do because it doesn't feel great. And so when it comes to kink, it's like something that I've chosen. And so different sensations, like whether it's uh, a flogger or doing rope or whatever, um, it's kind of a way of like, being able to pay attention to those sensations, but it feels more fun. It's something I've chosen. I'm probably engaging with somebody whose company I enjoy. Like it's, you know, a fun dynamic or whatever it is. And it's something that like, it just feels like, um, it's, it's like a more pleasant way to be in your own body and to feel those sensations and be more in the moment. So I guess maybe it's a little bit more mindfulness than it is meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has like a positive meditative quality to it, perhaps. Right. And those sensations can be so amazing because of the different kinds that you can have and the different, I guess, variety that comes with good sensation scenes, having Mm -hmm. something rough followed by something really soft. I do know that back when you did the Off the Cuffs episode, which was considering it was episode, I think, 202, and they're on 270-something, so oh, wow. it's been a while. I didn't realize uh, how long ago that was. <laughs> you had just started getting into rope bottoming. Yes. I have often said that when the placement of rope on somebody's body is like a physical hypnosis that happens, if you take account of every touch that that rope does. And it calms me down. Same for you? I find it super calming. I actually think it kind of feels like, uh, like kind of the effect of a weighted blanket, but weighted blankets never felt like they have like the, maybe the, the intended effect on me, but it's kind of that like deep pressure therapy where like, it's kind of like, I mean, it's basically a giant hug. So it just, it, like in that way, it feels really nice. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, there's actually, it's kind of wild, but like, there are times I have a lot of allergic reactions, as you can probably imagine. And mm-hmm. um, they're mostly relatively minor. Like I don't, uh, I've never been hospitalized for it, but um, you know, cause I, I manage it well, but um, I've had some that I've had a trouble getting to calm down and doing kink scenes or rope has sometimes helped with that because it's like so relaxing to your nervous system and like kind of that sensation kind of helps slow everything down and calm it down. So like in a lot of different ways, it's been really quieting and satisfying in that way. 
I'm just curious what your favorite rope scene has been. Um, most of my rope scenes that I've done have been more like playful, fun things I've done with friends. Um, there used to be an event that I attended uh, called Rope Bite that I, unfortunately uh, I haven't been since COVID started. Uh, but it's, it was just a fun thing to do with friends. And, and so I don't think there was a particular scene, just, just like, um, it was a, like, it's a, there's a particular friend that I, I tend to do it with. And it's like a fun way to spend time with that friend that we both really enjoy. Um, and it's usually goofy and playful and mm -hmm. uh, silly. And, and that's kind of just like how I am. And I, I love that. Do you have suspension in any of that? Or is it just ground, ground rope or? How does that it's work for you? Suspension. Just ah. because where we were had, had, had nice rigs, so we were able nice. to use them. I love the I love the feeling of flying. It's just absolutely amazing, and I love that. I, I, it's great. I think it's fun. So with ADHD, the ability to focus is difficult. How do you focus on your writing? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are so you, are really, you literally writing 10 blogs right now? And <laughs> luckily, no, um, actually I've kind of, uh, I haven't been writing my blog quite as much in the last, uh, recent years because, um, because it's just gotten a lot harder with some of the symptoms that I have with my chronic illness, uh, brain fog is a big one. And that kind of makes it a little bit harder to focus for me. It kind of also feels like my ADHD has, has developed superpowers since that became more symptomatic, but, mm. um, but yeah, uh, when I write, it takes me, it's usually something I do. Um, I think sometimes the way that you do it, the setting is really helpful. So for some reason it feels like with ADHD, sometimes something will feel like a huge hurdle. So if you're doing, um, you know, sometimes you can't get yourself to like pay the bill or something like that. You need to like figure out how to, how to get yourself to do the thing because the executive functioning isn't working right. And so for me, sometimes sitting down at my computer and like, physically, like just be like, okay, now we're going to write the thing is not the best way to do it. So a lot mm -hmm. of times I end up writing things on my phone. Um, sometimes I do it when I'm procrastinating, getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not a morning person. Um, and so I'll lay there for an hour or two. And at some point, some idea will pop into my head and I'll start writing it down. And then when I get to my computer later in the day, I'm able to kind of pull that over and like be like, oh, here's where I was going with that. So I think sometimes it's just uh, figuring out a way that to do things that works for you and doesn't feel like a hurdle you have to jump over. Are you somebody that writes like a faucet, meaning turn it on the words and just let it come out? <laughs> or are you one of those kinds that goes back and wants to edit everything as you're going? I am definitely the first one. It's definitely a stream of consciousness. And then um, I, I, I'm going to be honest, the way that things uh, come into my brain probably wouldn't make sense to anybody else, the things that I think are related. Um, and then I sit down and reread at the end and I'm like, oh, none of this makes sense. And I have to move <laughs> the sentences around like they're puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. um, because it's all there, it's just in the wrong, it's just in some jumbled way that um, makes sense to me, but doesn't actually like follow any type of grammatical sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. How much difference is it to write for Teen Vogue as it is to write for Sexual Health Magazine? So actually I didn't write those articles. Um, I was interviewed for, for them. So Interviewed uh, for them, that's okay, fair enough. Yes, um, so but the interviews, I think, um, Often it depends on the questions being asked, but I think that writing the responses to the interview questions is usually a similar process. So when Teen Vogue interviewed you, first of all, were you surprised? Second of all, did you have to kind of monitor how you were answering the questions? Um, so I think my uh, surprise, yes, mostly just excited that I was finally being published in a publication my, my family might have actually heard of, because I was like, uh, I told them about a couple others and they were like, yeah, we don't know what that one is. Um, at least my parents, they, they, they were more millennial geared. And I think that that was out of their uh, realm of awareness. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think um, I didn't really feel like I had to censor myself. I think that questions were specifically about for that article were about bisexuality. And I think it's, um, I don't think there's anything about that that's inappropriate or requiring censoring. So no, I think I was just really uh, honest about them, my answers. Rachel, do you like to be the interviewer or an interviewee? Both, I think. Um, I love having conversations with people and talking about things um, from either perspective. I really enjoy it. So when you are interviewed, is it mostly in a written form or um, at least for the magazines? Uh, is it a written set of questions that you have to respond to? Or is, is it sometimes a Zoom call just like we're doing today? 
sometimes there's um, often it's it's email because it's I think a lot easier for some people asynchronous communication. But um, usually there's an option if I want to do a Zoom or, or a written communication thing. And for me, it's a lot easier to do writing um, because I'm my brain fog um, and the way that my health stuff impacts my like cognitive functioning isn't always super reliable. And so it's easier to have uh, a few minutes to kind of like gather my thoughts and write the answers that I wanted to rather than whatever would have come out of my mouth if they had asked me on the spot. <laughs> how did Hedonish come about? And how did you come uh, up with a name? <laughs> okay, the name's a funny story, I think, or at least I find it funny. Um, I, my family is Jewish and I've always, I've been raised Jewish. Uh, I'm not religious, but, um, and so I used to tell my mom that I was Jewish. And as I was sitting in my car driving home from, from a past job, I was trying to give a name for a blog because I, I really wanted to start, um, I've, I, as I said, I was always fascinated with bisexuality and really wanted to figure out how to get a foot in the door. Um, and I, I couldn't think of a name. And then I thought of hedonish because I was like, I'm not quite a hedonist. I'm like, I'm hedonish. And I was like, that's perfect. And no one else had used it yet. So that's what we went with. Um, and how it came about was that I really wanted to get my foot in the door. Um, and then it kind of grew over time. It started with like a lot of sex toy reviews um, and, and some, you know, miscellaneous like sexuality education type topics. And then it kind of developed into something where, I, um, as I said, I, I had some of my own health problems that I ran to where I, I didn't know how to find answers or what doctors to go to for them um, and how they were impacting my sexuality. And so I realized that there was this like lack of information and I really wanted to start kind of heading in that direction where I became a resource that like was something that I would have needed um, and wish I could have been able to find. So, How much difference in your life do you think there would have been if there was a resource like that as you were growing up? I think that would have, I mean, it wasn't even when I was growing up. This was like a couple of years ago even. And True. I think it would have been really validating um, and less scary. So, you know, the things that I particularly was running into at the time was that I had a lot of vulva pain. Um, but I didn't know why it, I have vulvodynia. Um, it kind of developed. It was a weird, my body responds really weird to things. So for me, it was a weird reaction to birth control, um, or type of birth control. And, um, but I, at the time I didn't know, I didn't know that. And so I was kind of having all this pain with sex and I couldn't figure out why. And it wasn't the way that other people were describing theirs. Um, and, and I couldn't find anything that sounded relatable unless I looked at like things about like postmenopausal women and I'm, I'm 33. So, and at the time I was a couple years younger. And so I just, it felt like nothing applied to me, like nothing would, um, that, that there was just like, I was like, there's, there's gotta be another person in the world who's experienced whatever I'm experiencing. I'm sure there's several people in the world, mm -hmm. hundreds or thousands. Um, and yet there was no information for any of us. And that makes you feel really alone and isolated, especially when it comes to topics that people aren't generally comfortable discussing. Mm -hmm. So I think it would have been, uh, I think it would have found the same help eventually uh, and, and gotten kind of gotten that pain under control, but I think it would have been really validating and reassuring to know that other people were going through something similar. Feeling alone and isolated sounds like the perfect description of my COVID experience because I live by myself and the lack of touch was just so, so difficult. But the one thing that did bring me some solace was starting the podcast, getting to meet amazing people. And in that sense, it was a positive. The other huge positive that I see is the fact that if kinksters aren't educated by now, <laughs> with all the workshops and all the seminars and all the Zoom calls that there have been and Zoom uh, munches and chats, is there, has there ever been a better time for kink education than there is right now? I, you know, I don't know if there has been, but I hope that this sticks around because I think as much as everybody misses the in-person stuff, and I hope that comes back when it's safe too, um, and, you know, as it's increasingly safer, um, I hope that we keep the accessibility aspect of being able to also have virtual things. I think maybe, you know, maybe I think people need like a little break from it or something, but there, but even still, like there's so many ways to kind of, uh, if you're hosting a class, also include a virtual option maybe that's being recorded or something like that. Um, because then it does allow all those people who maybe didn't have access to the in-person educational events before for yeah, location reasons or medical reasons or any other reason, 
suddenly now all of those people can be involved in learning about these things. And I think that goes for really any topic, but um, so yeah, I think it's a great time to learn things. I think it's also really hard for anybody to learn something when we're in the middle of like a global trauma mm -hmm. kind of situation. I know my brain has not wanted to absorb anything, um, but I think as we kind of come out of it, that keeping that accessibility while having less of the stress behind the pandemic um, will make it like a really great learning environment for everybody. What has been your favorite article you've ever written and why? Uh, hmm. um, okay, so the one I think has been the most helpful is I wrote an article about, um, and boy, I didn't realize I was going to talk about this so much, but about uh, fragrance, accessible, making things accessible for people with fragrance and chemical sensitivities. And I wrote it because I was getting so many questions from people, either people who didn't know about it or people who wanted to be able to like hang out with me or people who wanted to host events um, and wanted to make it accessible, like from just all different parts of my life. Um, and I was getting tired of answering the same questions. Like, I didn't mind doing it, but like, I was like, there's gotta just be like a better resource or a better way to do this. It doesn't take up so much time. Um, and so I wrote this article and I've gone back and updated it a few times. And I think I, I thought of some other ways to, to kind of elaborate on those um, that I plan to do in the future, but it's been super helpful and people have had such a great response to it. Um, I've saw it cited on like UCLA's events page and, um, or like the, one of their, one of their college's uh, events page and in a bunch of other sources. And I'm so glad that this awareness, like this thing is becoming more, it's helping spread awareness for these accommodate, like needed, mm -hmm. need, I'm sorry, I can't even talk today. <laughs> huh. I'm glad it is spreading awareness for the need for this type of accessibility because um, fragrance and chemical sensitivities, even though often they're not as severe as mine, do impact like 30% of the population. Um, folks who get migraines or who are in chemo or um, a lot of other conditions, asthma and other things often react to fragrances, um, even if it's not quite to the level that I do. Have you shared any of your research or writings with places like, and I'm here in Cincinnati, so I immediately think of P&G, a Procter & Gamble, because if you think of all the fragrances they put in so many of their products. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, no. And I think that they're well aware. Um, mm. So if I'm going to get real nerdy about this. Okay. So there's like, I, I'm one of those people who like, if I'm having a reaction, if I'm sick from something, like I need to know what is happening and why mm -hmm. and understand like what is going on in my body that's making this a thing that doesn't work for me. So I looked into it a while and I've done a bunch of research and um, there's like several thousand fragrance chemicals um, and they're, they come up, they're developed by fragrance houses like internationally uh, and, and nationally. Um, and about a third of them have ever been independently tested for safety. Um, by people who are not like invested in their, in like improving that they're safe financially. So, um, and then companies like Procter and Gamble or other uh, Johnson Johnson, like whatever, they purchase basically like recipes from these companies um, and that's what they put in their products. And so mm. when you see the word fragrance on a bottle, it could be one chemical, but it can be 30 or 40 chemicals and they're in different combinations and that's what creates different smells. Um, and most of them have never been tested for safety. Mm. And in fact, they know that some of them are harmful. Um, they're endocrine disruptors. They find it in like babies, uh, umbilical cords and then a bunch of other stuff. It's like, it, it's just a whole thing that um, they can get away with because of old labeling laws. Wow, I'm getting really nerdy here. <laughs> <laughs> this is like one of those topics I just like to talk about way too much. But, but is yeah. there something in your mission that you think you can do to help, because obviously you are publicizing and making awareness much bigger on this particular issue. Is there some part of the back of your head that's going, I can make a real difference here? Because I will be honest with you, I've never heard of it before today. I got to be honest with you, before I developed it, I, other than hearing it from other people with the same medical condition that I have, because uh, it's not uncommon, um, I had never heard of it. And I was like, oh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. And then of course it did. Um, but I had never heard of it at all. Um, actually, when I was different, I was dying. When I developed the sensitivity, I was working for a Fortune 500 cosmetics company as a graphic designer and they made and sold perfume. Um, and so uh, that was an interesting workplace to be in. Um, 
but no, so I think my long-term goal, I don't think we're ever going to see a huge shift in what companies are willing to put in their products. I think that if people, enough people ask for fragrance-free products or ask for more, um, more transparency about what is in the products they use, I think I could see that shift. But what I think might be a more uh, logical place to spend my energy is that I would love to see um, ambient scenting, um, some regulations against that. So because if we think about the way that um, people used to normalize secondhand smoke and how toxic and harmful we realized that was because people are breathing in chemicals they didn't really consent to, um, putting fragrances and chemicals in HVAC systems and then people breathing them in is kind of the same concept. Um, and unfortunately, it's really hard to prove that chemicals are harmful in this country. It tends to be like innocent until proven guilty. So I like asbestos is illegal in a lot of ways. And like, it, it was even really hard to prove that that was even dangerous at all. Um, but I think that that might be a better avenue um, that could make a difference. And it's a starting point. Uh, and I hope to eventually figure out how to get some motion on that, but it's like a future, it's like a, like a long-term life goal, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> this program was originally about how people connect with each other, and then it evolved into how people connect with their genuine selves. What are the things that help people connect with you? What are the qualities and traits that really make you go, I want to form a bond with this person. So um, I would say like outwardly, like when I meet somebody new and the first thing I see, um, basically um, people who are like fun, weird and quirky in some way, shape or form. Uh, those are usually my go-to people. Um, even before I, I got in, like, I just, I've always collected friends who have really like interesting hobbies or um like even before I was in the sex ed world, like I only like all my friends were like in burlesque or they did, they, they, I had friends who were sex workers, like things that were just outside of the mainstream norm, because I just love the creativity and passion people had for these projects. Um, but in general, people who are really passionate about the things that they love, people who um, are really kind and, com and compassionate people, um, I really gravitate toward that. Also emotional intelligence. Um, and uh, like a willingness to learn and kind of expand your views. Those are all really qualities. I, I love new people. I don't know about your personal life, but um, you had mentioned your partner. What attracted you to your partner originally? So I have two, uh, I'm polyamorous. I, I have a, okay. um, a partner I've married to. We've been together for a, um, 14 and a half years. And then um, uh, another partner that I've been with uh, I actually met her at the last play party I hosted before glitter, before um, before the COVID hit. Um, so we've been mm. together about a year, almost a year and a half. Um, um, the partner I've been with for longer, I think what originally attracted me to him is he is the probably the kindest person I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, just one of those humans who just wants to help, and he is like he just the way he treats like other people and animals. I just I love it. Um, he's he's amazing. Uh, and then my newer partner, um, we just instantly started nerding out about topics that we were both really in interested in. Um, we kept interrupt, we were making out and we kept interrupting it to like talk about nerdy things. <laughs> and it, right then it went from being like, oh, this is a cute girl I want to make out with to being like, oh my God, I want to get to know this person. She seems really cool. So um, those were the things that were like the instantaneous. Um, also, they're both cute. So that's pretty great. That but, always helps. Yeah, it, those are the... <laughs> Those are the personality traits I was definitely very into. I'm going to ask a question from a basis of total naivety mm -hmm. because I'm about as straight a guy as you can meet that still wears cat suits. So, you know, there's still that. <laughs> um, is there a different mindset when you connect with the male and when you connect with your female partner? Um, there so do you mean in general or with the specific partners that I have? With the specific partners, are there two different Rachels? I definitely think there's one version of me. I'm, I'm one of those people who I just really like being my authentic self. Um, mm -hmm. I, I really value that. And I'm, I'm really terrible at acting like anything else other than uh, my authentic self. It tends to make me mm -hmm. honestly really anxious um, when I try to pretend like act some way that doesn't feel good to me. Right. Um, I think that 
as me, I show up as the same version of me. I also think that they are incredibly different people who bring out really different sides of me. Um, so I think, um, and, and it also, it's been different at different, you know, my partner that I've been with for 14 years, we've been together so long that there's been like a huge evolution in the way that I have been as a person. Uh, when we met, I was a freshman. When we started dating, actually, I was a freshman in college and um, I, I wasn't chronically ill or disabled. I was like, going to school for graphic design. Um, and, and since then, you know, there's been a whole, a whole life in, of change. So I think it uh, depends on what point in that timeline mm-hmm. you looked at, I'd probably be different with him. Um, and my other partner, I think it's just a different type of connection. So I think it's, I think, um, and, and that's kind of what I love about it is that they bring out different sides of me and I get to, you know, experience that with them. And, and it's, it's really great. You having a long time partner that has seen you through all these changes. I could imagine that that could be very difficult for them because the person they met is nowhere near the person that is here now. None of it was anybody's fault. It just happened. Mm -hmm. What do you think the key has been for him other than just the obvious, which is love? What has been the key for him to be able to adapt? And what has been the key for you to be able to accept those adaptations? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Um, I think that, so I think it's been a, a long journey for both of us. And I think that, you know, the changes that have happened in my life have been quite large. I mean, having a partner become disabled um, is, is like a really big life change. But I also think that in any relationship, in any long-term relationship, that there's going to be these huge shifts in, in who that person is that you're with. Because I think as humans, for the most part, um, we tend to evolve. We, 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 we learn new information. We experience new things. We, we try new things. We develop new interests. And so I think in that way that it's not so specific to, you know, um, to me being someone who became disabled while we've been together. Um, I think it's just like how we've navigated those, the way that we both, we both have evolved over time. Um, I think that there have been a lot of positives. There's been a lot of things that were hard. Um, there's been a lot of things that were, were wonderful. Um, and that, you know, so I think um, a lot of it's just been like communicating and talking about things. Um, I think um, asking for help when we both need it. So like talking to somebody else together, like a therapist has been really helpful. And when we get to some of the tricky stuff that like was just outside the realm of what we both knew how to handle um, has been really wonderful. Um, and I think that being really open and honest about how we are both feeling and like if we were feeling scared or overwhelmed or what we needed and figuring out what we needed and being able to ask each other for it is like a really valuable part of making something work because long-term, because whether it's a disability or like you're able-bodied for, you know, the time that you're, the whole time you're together, you're still going to change a lot. And a lot of things are going to happen and you're still going to have to figure out how to navigate those together. If you're, if that's a person that you want to be with. So we've gone through this entire episode And now we're getting to the coaching part, which is what you are really focusing on a lot now. Yeah. What is the biggest reason somebody comes to you for coaching? I'm trying to think of a way to sum it up because it's been like everybody's come to me with something different, Um, you know, but I think that the, um, I think that the main maybe theme has been, um, people kind of getting stuck in their own heads and not knowing how to navigate something without, without um, having someone else kind of ask the right questions to help them frame it in a different way for themselves. Is it easier for people to become their authentic selves these days or is it harder? I think that depends on a lot of things. I think um, in a lot of ways, there's a lot more things that are acceptable now. It also depends on where you live and wh- what things are safe. Uh, there's a lot of places in the world that, uh, or in the country even that um, it's not really safe to be a lot of people's authentic selves. Um, mm-hmm. and, 
and that might depend on who your family is and who the people around you are and, and you know, a lot of other factors. Um, I think that there's also getting to see more representation on the internet of, of things that might feel more authentic to you can be helpful for a lot of people. Um, and also everybody puts so much out there on the internet that that can maybe also be overwhelming and people feel like they have to look a certain way or be a certain way to be accepted. So I think it's kind of a loaded question and it depends on which angle you look at mm -hmm. it from. But I think there's an opportunity to maybe be authentic in a way that up until you know recent years you couldn't be, but it depends on the situation. You talk about having a pleasure-focused approach. Explain that for me. So when we talk about sex ed, um, we often don't talk about like what feels good. We don't talk about, uh, like I'm thinking back to like high school sex ed, talk mm -hmm. about the clitoris, or we don't talk about uh, queer sex, or we don't talk about, um, you know, basically much outside of like STDs and not getting pregnant, um, even if you have like really good sex ed, which almost nobody does. Um, and so I try to look at it as a way of like, you know, um, when people talk about like what sex is, I ask them like, okay, so what feels good to your body, right? So it's not so much about a specific act, but more about what feels good to you. Mm -hmm. And that might be different than what someone else feels, uh, what feels good for them. And kind of focusing on the things that like talking about pleasure as being important uh, and people deserving to experience that. Uh, I also think that's something that gets often removed from the conversation when you have a lot of, especially when you navigate things um, within like the healthcare world, so like um, there is countless medications, whether you're chronically ill or, or not. I mean, most, most Americans are on at least one medication um, that can impact your sex drive or your sexuality uh, or the way that you engage with sex. And often the, um, the discussion of pleasure or, or what you want or what feels good to you are, is never going to come up in those conversations. Uh, doctors even aren't even like trained to have conversations like that. And often are just people who are also uncomfortable having those conversations like everybody else. And so I think that focusing on pleasure and what, what feels good to you um, is an important part of sex education and, and sexuality and sexual health. There are many people who are coming out as sex coaches or relationship coaches in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Why Rachel Rose? That's a tough question. I, don't know. I mean, I should have a good one right off the bat, but I'm like, oh no. <laughs> um, so I... I think that I am good at helping people because um, often people need someone who is open-minded and non-judgmental and kind and compassionate and who truly wants to help. Um, and especially when it comes to people who uh, have ADHD or chronically ill or disabled, it is uh, often very reassuring to talk to somebody who has been through that thing. Um, I'm not going to try to give them unsolicited medical advice or all of the other things that people who have health issues deal with all the time. Like, I don't know, I don't think yoga is gonna solve your problem or going gluten-free um, unless that is specifically to you, uh, like a thing that you need. Um, but often when, when people who, are, who, who have health issues go to help anybody for help, we get a lot of this unsolicited, like don't really understand where we're coming from, don't understand what it feels like. I've been there, like I live it. And so I think in those ways, or when it comes to ADHD, I don't just think like, if you tried harder, you can do the thing. I understand why you have trouble doing the thing. Um, and so I try to focus a lot on things that I can speak to from experience. Um, because I think that that creates a connection that makes it easier to be like open with somebody and to also makes it easier for me to be able to help that person through the thing. The floor is yours to promote whatever you would like to, whether it's your coaching or your social media or your blog, please feel free. All right. Well, if, um, thank you everybody for listening. But, uh, and if you want to learn more about my work, you can visit me at www.hedonish.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at @hedonish. Um, and if you're interested in coaching, I offer a free 20-minute uh, phone consultation so we can talk and see if we're a good fit for each other. Uh, and you can book that through my website. It has been such a joy having you on the show. I have learned a lot of new things. <laughs> I love the fact that you like a kind man instead of a nice man or a kind human instead of a nice human because it seems to me that kind is your keyword. And I love that. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I hope this has been 
as much fun for you as it has been for me. It has. Thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. I learned so much from Rachel and can't believe some of the things, including fragrance challenges she deals with on a daily basis. Even the other day, I took in the aroma of so many different fragrances at work and thought about what she must go through. Yet she takes it in stride and keeps persevering. Next week, from the new movie, The Arrangement, starring Eric Roberts, it's Brittany Amber, who is a veteran of the adult industry, that brings work across the valley to Hollywood itself. I'm John, also known as Hi There Katsu, thanking you for being with us and reminding you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What women and other wonderful humans want connects with you. Leave us a message at 513-788-2527. And we invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. We're kinky done differently. 